This is Soccer City. The use of headgear is limited in soccer. New York City resident Claudio Storelli, by way of Milan, Italy, is the founder of Storelli Sports in Brooklyn, a company on the cutting edge of concussion prevention. Claudio will share his thoughts on what he's developed and how it may be part of the future in soccer. New York City FC newcomer, 19-year-old Valentin Castellanos, got a surprising start for the boys in blue against Vancouver and produced the eventual tying goal in his first career match in Major League Soccer. I'll have that story along with Soccer Block, our intrepid high school reporters from the NYU School of Professional Studies. They'll take a close-up look on immigration and how it impacts the soccer community in New York City. Last Wednesday in Atlanta, Halftime of the MLS All-Star Game, the winner of the MLS Works Community MVP was announced. One Community MVP representative uh, from each MLS team was there, all 23 teams. Adrian Conaboy, featured a couple of weeks ago here on Soccer City, was the New York City FC MVP for his service to the NYC community with a foundation he formed after recovering from brain cancer. Hashtag, we can kick it. Well... Adrian was the winner, and he and We Can Kick It awarded $25,000. And Adrian, he's with us by phone. Adrian, I just wanted to say congratulations. How are you? Uh, thanks, Glenn. Yeah, um, over the moon. Actually, we, we didn't expect to win it, um, but like, thanks to all my family and friends and all the NYC supporters um, for voting and believing in our cause. Well, first of all, tell me about your overall experience at the All-Star Game. I, I, I've talked to many who attended, and they just the, the whole atmosphere was fantastic, they said. Uh, we arrived on Tuesday uh, morning, and they, they, MLS Works had like plans for us, and you know, we met all the, all the other charities, and, you know, that, that was, and then we volunteered on, uh, on the Wednesday at some school in Atlanta, um, we um, were packing with uh, some of the Juventus guys like Edgar David and David Trezeguet were there and uh, Landon Donovan. And it was like uh, the, st- uh, the stadium at Atlanta was unbelievable. Like, um, I-, I don't know if you've ever been, but like it's an uh, unbelievable arena. Yeah, I have been. In fact, in New York City, we did a broadcast when they uh, played uh, in Atlanta, uh, an exciting 2-2 draw. Well, there you are at halftime in front of 70,000-plus. Tell me about your emotions when you heard your name and We Can Kick It announced. Um, It was quite funny because the sound was quite muffled when when you're on the field. So I could could just about make up um, New York City FC, and I was like, no. And then, I, I, you know, um, Katie got a picture of me um, and I've got my hands on my head. I was like, you know, I, I was just shocked, really shocked that we won. So uh, thanks to all that voted for us. And, um, yeah, it, it's going to take our charity. We can kick it to the next level. Well, describe to us again what We Can Kick It is and, and how that $25,000 is really going to help. We Can Kick It, we provide uh, soccer programs to kids and young adults affected by cancer. So basically, if you're brother has cancer or your mum has cancer uh, you could uh, come come into the program so yeah I mean I'm very excited about what um, we're going to do we've um, basically at half time uh, John uh, invited us up to the New York CFC uh, suite and so we were discussing uh, then uh, you know how to move things forward with the club I'm really excited about what we can do like I'm thinking about bringing out some kids uh, to a game in September for pediatric uh, cancer month 
you know, uh, so um, it's exciting. Well, Adrian, uh, once again, congratulations. Uh, what you're doing within the community is fantastic. And for those who would like to hear Adrian's complete story, episode 20 of Soccer City. Pull it back up on iTunes or tune in, and you can listen to it. Adrian, thanks so much, and look forward to seeing you again. Thanks, Ben. Cheers. New York City FC coach Dolme Turan intimated last week to a group of reporters that Valentin Castellanos would uh, be available for the Saturday match against the Vancouver Whitecaps. Ultimately, Turan decided that the 19-year-old Argentine was a superior option to start the home contest. Well, this provided a bit of jolt to those of us covering the game. Castellanos, he had completed just three training sessions with his new club, but the limited time in practice did not serve to dissuade Turan. His experience as an assistant to Pep Guardiola at Barcelona, Bayern Munich, and Manchester City told him otherwise. In Europe, it's normal. Uh, I remember one game in, uh, against Schalke in Bundesliga and uh, arrived uh, Xabi Alonso fr- uh, uh, Friday and Saturday uh, he played. For, for, for me it's normal. The most important thing is when the coach believes in this player and I think he's ready to play maybe 60 minutes and um, my question about that was uh, he's ready to play maybe the second half 30 minutes but I, why not uh, in, the, uh, in the 11 and 60 minutes I don't know but he has quality to play and to help us in the, especially because uh, against Vancouver, uh, we want we want to play a little bit different with uh, with wingers, uh, white, and he has this quality. And Castellanos rewarded Toronto's decision when he scored in the opening minute of the second half to help NYCFC earn a 2-2 draw in his Major League Soccer debut. Castellanos, who transferred from sister club Atletico Torque in Uruguay, said he was at ease with Toronto's decision. Through a translator, he said, quote, I was asked by Dome about how I feel to be in the starting 11 since I just arrived with the club, and I said, I'm happy for the opportunity, and my coach Dome and my teammates giving me the part of the starting 11. Well, we know Castellanos was comfortable in part because he had already met Toronto in Manchester. Castellanos trained with Manchester City prior to joining Club Torque. And he said, quote, being able to work with him, Dome, again here in New York City, is a gift. With his verdict to start Castellanos, Toronto elected to go against the coaching grain that suggests easing in a new young player into the lineup. Chris Winger, the former MLS defender who patrolled the back line for NYCFC in its expansion 2015 season, pondered Toronto's decision as my broadcast partner on Saturday here on WNYE. Uh, certainly I was surprised like everyone else. I think that's not the norm. Uh, I think for a guy to come in new to the team, you might want to get him right into the mix, but have him in the A team, maybe bring him in the second half. I think New York City FC clearly has some great options on the wing. Certainly a little bit surprising. Yeah, Wingert said he clearly understood the decision, though, made as part of a professional environment, but he cautioned that there are ancillary effects to be aware of. I can't imagine that that sat too well with uh, Tommy McNamara and... Rodney Wallace and Jonathan Lewis, other guys that could have been that option. With that being said, credit to the coach. You shouldn't be making your lineup based on what everybody else wants and what the 
traditional way of doing things would be. You should put out your best 11. So if he feels that Cassianos is in the best 11, then that's who should play. And Tarrant felt strongly about his decision, not just based on his observations in Manchester, but more recent evaluations. I knew this player uh, when he played in, in Uruguay. Uh, he know exactly uh, his quality. Uh, in fact, he training the last 15 days uh, with the former team. And he's fit, and he training uh, with us uh, four four times. Especially the last uh, two training session, he was amazing. Castellanos was replaced by Kwame Awua in the 65th minute of the tie, which extended New York City's franchise record unbeaten streak at home to 14 matches. In addition to Castellanos, there was another teen causing a buzz at the Yankee Stadium, 17-year-old Alfonso Davies visiting with the Whitecaps. Less than two weeks after an MLS record $13.5 million transfer to Bayern Munich, where Tehran served as Guardiola's lieutenant in the years 2013 through 16. It's not easy to play in the Bayern Munich because he's a top team. He's a young player, he has, uh, he has quality to play in Europe, but uh, believe me, it's not easy to play, uh, especially when when you when you go there in the last and uh, the first uh, six months. It's very very different the rhythm, the rhythm, the quality of the players, uh, the defenders. But I think he has quality to play in Europe. Davies' story is one of inspiration, born in Ghana to Libyan parents who had fled that country's civil war. He moved to Canada at five years old and a year later enrolled in free footy. An immigrant welcomed in Edmonton, Alberta, and the chance to play without any cost to his parents, who he praised while still taking it all in when he spoke with Sirius XMFC at the MLS All-Star Game. My mom, when I told her the news, and my dad had a humongous smile on their face. They were really proud of me. This is what I've been telling them. I want to be a professional soccer player all my life. And, you know, when I signed for Vancouver, my mom was really proud. She said, keep keep doing what you're doing. Keep going. Don't let anyone stop you. I was like, okay. So then being able to sign for a club like Bayern is just a dream come true. Vancouver coach Carl Robinson elected not to start Davies on Saturday in the Bronx, but he did enter in the second half and force the most difficult save of the night for city keeper Brad Stuver. Davies' impact was felt. He was on the field when the Whitecaps tied up the game late. Davies, he'll finish out the season with Vancouver before fusing with Bayern and the Bundesliga in January. Well, I don't know if you'll remember, but Wayne Rooney was pictured uh, in, in 2014. He had sustained a head injury, and he was uh, wearing this headgear. So there were a lot of pictures of it uh, because it was an unusual sight. that The players don't wear headgear, but, but he did. And uh, Grant Wall then... Uh, tweeted shortly after he saw this uh, Rooney headgear. He tweeted, Wayne Rooney's headgear came from a guy in a startup company working out of his Jersey City apartment. True story. Jersey City is in New Jersey. Well, that guy, Claudio Storelli, is the founder of the Brooklyn, New York-based Storelli Sports uh, with soccer gear to reduce injuries, improve performance. He was born and raised in Milan, Italy, uh, he came to the States to study, played at Stanford University, then the Columbia Law School. Welcome to the program, uh, Claudio Storelli. Hi, Claudio. Hi, Glenn. How are you? I'm, I'm fine, thanks. Uh, this, this, this headgear, and I, I'm, I'm so happy to finally get you on and, and really talk about this. We'll talk about the uh, 
the recent uh, study that was released by Virginia Tech. But uh, the headgear got FIFA's blessing in 2004. Then you had Wayne Rooney wearing your your headgear. Uh, and that had to be, uh, that kind of publicity had to, you would think, help. But we see so few players wearing it, male, female, youth, amateur, college, pro. So why not? Why don't they wear it? Yeah, the you know the Wayne Rooney um, event certainly helped awareness. Uh, however, uh, headgear is just new to the game, so um, it's um, it's often used these days only for by, by people who have already sustained an injury, and uh, it's going to take uh, more data coming out of uh, uh, very credible research institutions to show that it actually helps prevent injuries. And um, and uh, and it should be adopted in mass. And I think that when that happens, we're going to witness what we witnessed over the past uh, two or three decades with the uh, uh, ski and snowboarding helmets, where they went from nobody wearing them to everybody wearing them. Uh, so let's let's point to this study. Uh, this was released in 2018 in the spring uh, from uh, the Virginia Tech Helmet Lab. I had never heard of it, uh, but it had this rating system uh, grading. Uh, uh, the safety of equipment on this five-star scale. Uh, your your particular product uh, rated highest among this, but I guess what was uh, interesting about this survey, and you can get into it and describe it for us, is that it really uh, did prove, at least through a statistical analysis, that yes, headgear will reduce concussion risk. Is that correct? Yes, correct. So um, the Virginia uh, Tech Helmet Lab is the, the preeminent lab that studies uh, head injuries and sports helmets. So it's the, uh, for brands, uh, schools, it's the, the, the ranking of reference when, when you want to look at which one is the best football helmets or hockey helmets. And it was this lab that had brought up the fact that uh, in the past, uh, helmets for m- many sports were actually not very helpful in preventing concussions because they've developed their own proprietary way of modeling out the risk of concussions based on certain hit and the amount of uh, impact that is absorbed by the helmet. Uh, for the first time in 2018, they released a similar ranking for soccer, and their main conclusion and what is, you know, was part of the headlines is soccer headgear can dramatically reduce the risk of concussions. Um, and uh, we were you know, pleased to see that our, our product was the, the best ranked in the market with an estimated reduction in concussions of 84%, which is pretty staggering if you, if you think about it. Uh, now, I think you need to consider that it's a, it's a lab test, so it's according to, to models and uh, based on very specific types of impact. So I think the market needs more studies and more field studies, but luckily those are already happening. And so I think we're going to see uh, the most credible large uh, field study uh, coming out of University of Wisconsin Medicine and sponsored by Noxe, come out this fall. So my my forecast is that by late 2018, early 2019, it's going to become a well-known fact that headgear actually helps prevent concussions, and we're going to witness the beginning of an institutional change in the way we approach uh, head protection in soccer. I, I look at the word prevent, uh, you, the word limit, uh, is it is it wrong to use the word prevent? Can can a product uh, can anything prevent a concussion? I mean, you could still maybe get hit in a certain manner. Uh, you know what I mean? Is is that word dangerous to use? Yeah, no. It, it's a you gotta you gotta look at it as a spectrum of risks, 
And what you're doing is you're limiting the risk to some extent. There is by no means a silver bullet against concussions. I mean, just think about the fact that you could be wearing the most protective of helmets. It's, you know, missile-proof. And you could just slip on a banana peel and rock your head really rapidly, not even hit it, and just by whiplashing, your brain could move so fast inside your skull that you cause yourself a concussion. So absorbing impact goes to address one of the main causes of concussions, and if the device that you're wearing is very effective, at least when you're being hit in those areas that are covered by a helmet, will help. If you get punched in the chin, unless you're wearing a helmet that covers your chin, it's not going to help. So you're definitely not preventing 100% of concussions, but you're taking a step in the right direction. Uh, Claudio Storelli, uh, co-founder and chairman of uh, Storelli Sports, is our guest. We're talking concussions and uh, preventative headgear. When we talk about concussions, Claudio, and you, you play the game, can we just say that I think there's this misnomer that heading the ball is what leads to concussions when isn't it many other things that go on in the game, whether it's uh, running into a post or, or head-to-head collisions between two players? Uh, but the actual act of heading the ball... I don't know if any uh, studies have been done on that, what, how that gets percentaged out. And, and you mentioned the brain moving with the whiplash or things like that. So how does heading the ball actually fit in? When, when you look at how concussions uh, are, are caused, the, the, you can summarize by saying that the primary cause is foul play, meaning it tends to be body-to-body contact or body-to-field or body-to-goal contact that causes most concussions. Heading of the ball presents a, a different set of problems, which are subconcussive damages, which are actually so far have not been the focus of, um, of studies, because especially in the U.S., which is leading the charge, the focus has, has kind of come out of uh, more violent sports like the NFL and hockey, where concussions happen when you get hit really hard by another player. Because you're not using your head, the concept of subconcussive hits is not really well studied, but it's getting now studied a lot in the UK, um, and uh, that's now showing that if you had the ball 10 times in a row, uh, you actually have immediate cognitive uh, impacts. So you are physically a little bit dumber after you had the ball for 10 times in a row, and uh, so that's a kind of a different, uh, uh, different set of problems that research is focusing on. But when it comes to full-blown concussions, so you know the brain scarring because of dramatic movement inside the skull, it's primarily an elbow to the head or a head-to-head collision uh, that causes it, uh, as opposed to just heading the ball. When you say head the ball ten straight times, is that in a uh, in a controlled setting where you toss it quickly, or you mean in the course of of a game where you where, it's, where uh, you're it's if you wanna if you and if you wanna look it up, the, the research is coming out of the University of Stirling. Uh, that has a very specialized lab that basically takes uh, um, volunteers that are active soccer players, does certain brain scans, looks at their activity uh, level and how the brain fires before practice, and then puts them through a control drill where basically the ball is crossed in. They head the ball between 10 and 20 times and then performs the same brain scans, and you see very visible changes in, w- in the way the, brains, the brain works. Uh, so that's a a new area mm. of, of study and a rather scary one, uh, although there's not yet any conclusions that this links to long-term effects, but it seems pretty logical that if, you, if I 
take you and I slap you in the head 10 times and then ask you to do math problems, you may be less able to do it because your brain is, after all, being affected by 10 slaps in the head. So uh, would you anticipate then when the study is complete and it's, uh, it's brought to the attention of uh, all those in the soccer community, including the federations or our federation, that it might eventually lead to being a requirement? You can't play a football game without a helmet. You can't play hockey without a helmet. So what do you think? As a soccer purist, although, you know, you can argue I make protective gear, um, but we obviously headgear is one of the many things we do, and we're helping professional athletes deal with real injuries, and we're helping them in a meaningful way. I don't really wish for that to be mandated. I feel like the, the beautiful thing about a free market is that you make your own decisions. What I think will happen is, the market needs more information. Right now we're ignorant. The fact that we're even debating whether if wearing headgear can actually hurt shows that we don't have facts to look at. This will, will stop. There are going to be very credible facts with thousands of, um, of, uh, of data points that will settle the debate as to whether it helps and how much. And if I were the federation, I would say, okay, let me inform the community and let them make a decision and maybe say, we encourage you to wear headgear. And I think that that will follow through at the, at the club level where certain boards are going to decide to be more proactive and say if everybody on the team is wearing headgear, they're less likely to get hurt because obviously when two padded headbands hit each other, it's safer than when only one of them is padded. So I think you're going to see certain communities being more proactive. And uh, unfortunately, given the, the litigation environment in the U.S., I wouldn't be surprised if it's down the road there's a lawsuit which says that a youth organization has been negligent in not requiring headgear, and that leads to a broader mandate. So do I want it to be mandated? No, I just don't like that as my personal philosophy. Um, however, I think that, yes, you're looking at a future, maybe two, three years down the road, where as a youth player you need to play with, with protection. That's Claudio Storelli of Storelli Sports in Brooklyn and his effort to help limit concussions in soccer. Next, our high school students from the NYU School of Professional Studies with their final submission of Soccer on the Block. The topic this week, vital to the New York City community, the impact of soccer on immigrants. Reporting for Soccer in the City, this is Kwaku, Piero, and Serene. We are here at Malali Park. We'll be interviewing children of immigrants. We have here Alex, Nico, and Justin. How are you? I'm 17. I'm 16. I'm 14. Where are you from? I'm from Honduras. South Africa. My parents are from Ecuador and Puerto Rican. How is it being a child of immigrants? Good because I know my true identity due to the struggles my parents went through to have this life for me now. It made me realize that life is hard for other people that comes from other countries and around the world. Not so bad. Can you tell us about your experience? What experience? Of being an immigrant? Yes. It's good. People treat you nice. Some people treat you bad. I say it's, uh, it's kind of challenging for my grandparents because uh, they had to fit into this world that, you know, people speak a different language than Spanish. So it was hard for them to fit in. Do you love playing soccer? Yes, I do love playing soccer. Why do you love playing soccer? I love playing soccer because it's my getaway. My getaway from all the violence I see on the news. Why do you love playing soccer? Because it's my favorite sport. Who do you like playing with? Well, I'll play anybody, really. I'm, I really. I'm just a person that's trying to get better and trying to go to college, trying to play professional. And how do you think soccer has helped you being an, a child of an immigrant? Because I get away from, it helps me get away from the negative thoughts and how people treat me bad because I'm a child of an immigrant. 
And how is it being a grandson of immigrants? I say it's uh it's kind of challenging for my grandparents because uh they had to fit into this world that you know people speak a different language than Spanish, so it was hard for them to fit in. And how did that make you feel when you found out about that? That that made me that challenged me actually to you know speak Spanish at home, speak English outside, and it kind of make it like a diverse world out here. What have you learned throughout those experiences? That um you know it's not it's really hard being uh being you know part of an immigrant family because uh, not many people will respect you. Has soccer done anything to help you go through that moment? Yes, soccer has. It's like a way for me to clear my head, you know, from everything that's happening around me, everything, every violin, every racist, you know, it's just a way for me to, you know, be free. Sign up for soccer in the city. This is Kwaku, Piero, and Serene. Good afternoon, guys. It's Serial and Michael. We're going to interview a man named Elvis Callejas Garcia, who is a migration counselor with the Unaccompanied Minors Program from Refugee and Migration Services of Catholic Charities of New York. He fled from Honduras at the age of 15 in search of opportunities. So you use soccer in order to um, get unaccompanied um, minors in a place rather than to be in the street. Using this tool, like, how will you develop their full potential as a person? I mean, more like I wanted them to be together. I wanted them to learn lessons like working as teammates, you know, becoming leaders uh, in their communities, um, staying with their education. Like, I'm on the soccer field. I'm always talking to them. How are you doing in school? How are your grades, you know? And, and that shows those kids, you know, hey, there's somebody who's watching me I need to do well I need to start caring because there's somebody who's actually asking about this and I need to start paying attention um, you know unfortunately some of the kids that we work with um, do not have a lot of support uh, they come to this country and like I said everything is, is new to them and just having a friend or having a place that they can go and you know and, and be themselves is it's just uh, it just brings a different type of feeling that I cannot explain, you know. But it's it's some type of belonging, peace, you know, that you are part of something. Um, many kids cannot go back to their home countries, you know, and in some way they feel like their countries failed them. They didn't want them, and they come here and then they are facing deportation proceeding, another place where they don't want them, you know. So who's going to want them? Can you share with us some specific um, stories of kids who has gone through your program? Yeah, I have so many. Um, I remember this kid who, who he wouldn't talk to anybody because he had gone through so much so much trauma in home country, and he could not like. It was hard for him to communicate with other kids. He was just very quiet, and he would just come. You know, every 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 Saturday to play with us, and at the end he was like nobody could stop him talking. You know, like he was somehow it became like a therapy. He was just looking forward to be there, and he like he was the best goalie we had, and you know he had never played soccer before because he was so afraid of, of the gangs going out of the of the house. He was afraid to go into the soccer field in home country because. Um, he didn't know what could happen there. It was too dangerous to go to the soccer field. So coming here and having the chance to play soccer and, and creating friendship and start trusting people, uh, trusting other kids, uh, I think helped him in his transition uh, to the new life in this country. What do you one day want this program to extend 
as a na like nationwide in order to reach more kids and help more kids. I mean, I think if anybody wants to play soccer, they should have the chance to play soccer. It doesn't matter where in the world you are. And I hope that one day, you know, this program can be an example to other cities where they can see how soccer can help immigrant children, refugee children to integrate in the communities and how soccer can be a tool to welcome kids, not only immigrants or refugee kids, but any kids who might be doing nothing, you know, feeling like I don't belong anywhere, or like I'm not part of anything or, you know, I'm alone. When in reality they can come to a soccer program and meet other kids and see, I'm not alone, you know, there is more people. Uh, I am part of this group and I belong somewhere and I want to be a leader in this community. All right, thank you. For Soccer on the Block, it's Michael and Surya. Well, thank you, boys, and that'll do it for this episode of Soccer City. Our next New York City FC broadcast is this Sunday when the boys in blue take on the defending MLS Cup champions, Toronto FC. Join me along with Chris Wingert for the call. I'm Glenn Crooks, and have a great week of soccer.